Hello and welcome to the Decrypting Crypto Podcast. It's March 16th and this is Off Chain, your weekly recap of the biggest stories in Web3. I'm Matthew House Barbie, and as always, I'm here with Austin Knight. How are you doing, Austin? Uh, conflicted, maybe? I don't know. I'm looking at the uh, chart right now that is green for the first time in a couple weeks, which is uh, Bitcoin's current value hanging out around like 25K right now. And I think Beautiful it's probably sight. poised. Beautiful yeah, sight. Yeah, it is nice to see that. I think it's probably poised to go up because Jim Cramer just said that he's selling all of his Bitcoins. So that's a good oh, sign. Oh, that's bullish. That's uh, bullish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, uh, like the bank that backs basically, or the banks that back our industry have all kind of just evaporated, Matt. <laughs> that's good, Austin, because it means no one can sell. No sell pressure. Yeah. <laughs> There's no banks to sell through. So, you know, we're good. <laughs> yeah, well, this is, so we're going to spend, I'm sure everyone's been enjoying the relentless coverage of Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, don't worry, we are going to do a deep dive <laughs> into that very same topic today. But we're going to be talking a little bit around like, you know, very high level, how did the SVB collapse happen and then also Silvergate, Signature Bank, etc. And talk a little bit more about what the future holds for crypto banking in particular. Um, I will also say one thing that we're not going to cover in this, but something I am pretty happy about is Arbitrum have finally just announced that the much anticipated, like mm-hmm. the multi-year question of when is now been answered in their airdrop, which is coming next week, which is going to be Pretty great. Uh, so I'm excited about that. Uh, outside of that, you know, the whole markets are up in the most bizarre of terms, but we can yeah. understand and explain and unpack why. So why don't we dive into this thing? You ready, Austin? Yep, let's do it. So we talked last week about Silvergate Bank collapsing. And we mentioned at the time, I think, well, I think we said, well, thank goodness that it was Silvergate that has around <laughs> 11, <laughs> 11 billion in assets. And it's not Signature Bank with a, what, 111, 114 billion in assets somewhere in that region. Um, yeah, no, it's Signature like Bank's gone as well. It's, it, it's gone. <laughs> we did this. Uh, so, uh, and the, the, the big kind of catalyst behind all of this is, of course, Silicon Valley Bank. So why don't we kind of start there? You know, talk a little bit about why Silicon Valley Bank failed at a very high level. And then we'll start digging into what this means and what the future holds and all of the collateral damage and I guess panic that's hitting the markets. So <clears throat> Silicon Valley Bank may have been the biggest bank you'd never heard of uh, if you were not in business banking. Uh, it focused largely on the the tech sector, had a huge amount of their exposure uh, to the large drawdowns that this space saw pretty much through the past 12, 18 months. But at the same time, they also benefited from the huge upside in 2021 from startups getting funding and then depositing into Silicon Valley Bank. Um, you know, it's, it's worth calling out, like Silicon Valley Bank was like the go-to, it's a commercial bank. It wasn't focused on end consumers. And it's an important call out. But, you know, pretty much any 
startup tech company that raised uh, capital in 2021, you know, the, the VCs that were funding those recommended to those those companies that they should bank with Silicon Valley Bank. Um, but <clears throat> before we kind of go into this, let's just a quick refresher of actually how banks work at the, at the high level. And, uh, you know, banks work by growing capital primarily through deposits. So the bank's customers, in this case, companies, actually depositing funds into the bank. And then they lend out those deposits to create additional profits. Now, <clears throat> Silicon Valley Bank had an obscene level of growth in 2021. It was like monumental levels of growth. And this was largely fueled by the VC feeding frenzy that happened in tech. And it actually got to a point where you know, they were taking all these deposits in, they were lending out, they actually had more cash than they could even lend out. So they decided instead of holding all of this capital in cash, they decided to put a huge chunk of their capital into bonds, US treasuries. Now, <clears throat> what you would probably say is the safest, one of the, if not the safest asset class in the world. Nothing wrong with that. Pretty common practice to put uh, instead of holding cash, put them in treasuries. The problem was they actually tied up a huge proportion of their capital at a time where interest rates were at kind of all-time lows. They were yielding very, very little on what was billions of dollars of cash. It was like, in the grand scheme of things, a nominal amount, but they were long-dated treasury bills and government-backed mortgage securities. And the bet here that they made in 2021 was, and remember, this is the time when we were all talking about, is inflation transitory or is this actually a real thing? Uh, I guess it wasn't transitory, uh, spoiler. Um, but they were betting that interest rates would remain low for a very long time. And they were, of course, wrong. Rates have increased dramatically and they've had to sell out a a load of their their bonds at a huge discount. So they lost about $1.8 billion in the process. So for example, if you're putting a billion dollar, a billion dollars in a, let's say a 30 year treasury bill, you're locking in the interest rate. It's a fixed interest rate on a treasury bill. So let's say at the time it was, I don't know, what was it probably like 0.2% interest, something like that ridiculous yeah. on the, the yields, right? And... <clears throat> You, you then hold that, and if you keep it until maturity, okay, those those treasury bills will, you'll get that billion plus 0.02% interest. You can also sell them on the open market, but if interest rates now and yields on treasury bills at the time of this were like, what, 4.7, your bond is going to kind of go uh, sell at a discount because I could just purchase a fresh treasury bill, get my 4.7% interest on that nice juicy billion I want to spend uh, versus buy yours. Or what will happen is your your kind of, uh, your bond will be sold at a discounted rate. And this is the problem they had. They needed to shore up some liquidity because a lot of their customer base had had huge drawdowns in their valuations, deposits were were reducing, so they had to cover up. They lost $1.8 billion. Now, that's a 
somewhat sizable hole, but in the grand scheme of thing isn't enormous, right? Like when we put into the context of them having like well over, well over like a hundred, uh, sorry, well over $200 billion in, in assets, not quite $250 billion in assets, which is an important disclaimer to make, but a lot. So they announced that they'd be raising some capital that would cover these losses and shore up some of their capital reserves. Unfortunately for them, this spooked the hell out of the market, and in particular, the kind of wider VC community. And what happened was it triggered a, a run on the bank. So they, the most kind of famous of, of all of this so far is Peter Thiel uh, saying, what is it? Is it Founders Fund, uh, mm-hmm. Peter Thiel? Yep. Yeah. Um, saying to all of the startups that that funded through Founders Fund, hey, look, something's going on at Silicon Valley Bank. We recommend you pull capital out of it because we think something could go really, really bad. And, you know, this combined with just then uh, just a, a real sense of panic in the startup community uh, triggered a bank run where $42 billion was withdrawn last Thursday alone. And by Friday, the bank had a negative cash balance just shy of $1 billion. That's not good. That is never good. As a bank, <laughs> what I would probably say, Austin, is you don't want to have a negative cash balance um, because then you have <laughs> minus money. Not good. Yeah. Uh, and I, then to, I, like, I yeah. do think, Matt, you know, as bizarre as this is, this isn't the first billion dollar hole we've seen in the last 12 months. It's not. It's not. And, you know, you, it's a hole that can't even be plugged with a super yacht, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, so, you know, well, well, what happened here, right? So the, you've got minus $1 billion, not great uh, for the bank. And the FDIC, the... Um, oh my goodness! Federal Deposits Insurance Commission is that, oh, I think that's the uh, the the acronym. They jumped in to effectively close the bank on the Friday, which is often the case when uh, the FDIC will close a bank um, so that they can find a buyer after the market's closed over a weekend. Um, but the the big kind of thing with all of this that was announced on Sunday is that the Fed since put in a backstop where they would cover all of the deposits in full of everyone banking with Silicon Valley Bank. And it's important to know that only like traditionally $250,000 worth of your, your deposits are covered by FDIC insurance. That is a concern because, yeah, if you're a startup, and you raise $10 million, which is pretty common in in a bank like Silicon Valley Bank, you put it all in Silicon Valley Bank, you probably want a little bit more than 250000 of that back. So that's how we got to this kind of stage. And then it kind of felt like we, we went into a whole new level of chaos with Circle Austin, right? Oh, yeah. So, uh, of course, you know, during all of this chaos over the weekend, when we were sort of in limbo, uh, you, you may have recalled, Matt, like going in, into Friday, nobody was really clear uh, whether depositors funds would be covered. Right. Um, and it was over the weekend that the FDIC stepped in. 
Uh, and of course, during this time, the USDC stablecoin depegged. And this was because it turned out that Circle, which is the company behind USDC, announced that they had $3.3 billion of USDC reserves sitting in Silicon Valley Bank. So USDC, when it depegged, fell to as low as 87 cents, but it has since recovered on the news that the deposits were going to be saved. So we're all right there. But that was a pretty wild time, quite the roller coaster, especially for people that, you know, are holding USDC, which has historically been, you know, a guilty stable asset. <laughs> <Guilty>. <laughs> yeah, that was that was fun. Waking up to my CoinGecko alert of your uh, USDC is 87 cents at 7 a.m. in the morning in the UK oh. and going, all right, well... Ah, time to either take a haircut or strap in for the ride. <laughs> it's like great. Uh, yeah, that was that fun. was uh, that was not the sugar that you wanted to go with your morning tea. <laughs> exactly, exactly, Austin. It certainly wasn't. Um, uh, trying to toss in the British references. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. It's, it's good. It's good. I mean, it, it was it was crazy to see that. Um, you know, I that's the first time in quite a while where I looked at a chart and I was like, whoa, like we are potentially like mega fucked at this point. Like if it cannot be understated, like if USDC had have collapsed, right? Like Luna style, um, how bad that would be. Yeah, that, that would, that, that would have truly nuked everything for yeah. quite some time you know and you're looking at all of the other stable coins that um are quote unquote decentralized stable coins the die of the world the frax etc 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 well guess what they're all partially collateralized by usdc so when usdc falls they fall they were all crumbling it was pretty much exclusively tether usdt almost ironically that held steady through all of this was actually true proven to be the safe haven uh something i didn't think i'd be saying in uh, a few years ago um so yeah it was uh it was kind of crazy and then you know we had more moves from the fdic right <laughs> yes yeah, so yeah, right in addition to all of the chaos that was happening with silicon valley bank and its collapse and of course Silvergate, which we talked about last week, which was one of the two major crypto banks, the other major crypto bank being Signature Bank. Well, it turns out that the FDIC then moved in to close Signature Bank, which had a little over $110 billion in assets and was easily the largest crypto bank in the US. So once again, the Fed has put provisions in place to cover deposits, but what this means is that with SVB collapsing, Signature Bank collapsing, and Silvergate collapsing, uh, you don't really have much of a place for crypto to uh, participate in the traditional financial system, something we can get into a bit there, some interesting implications with that. Uh, in addition, yeah, go ahead, Matt. Have you, have you been following this whole thing with like the signature bank stuff where there's been like a, a people involved in this that have been, and I always struggle with this in like crypto Twitter a little bit where 
there's been discussions that actually Signature Bank were like operating from a balance sheet perspective completely fine. And the FDIC kind of moved in really on a big crackdown on the crypto side of things. I, I don't want to put my like tinfoil hat on, but there seems to be a lot of like people inside that process that have been talking about this. I don't, have you followed any of this stuff? Yeah, yeah. I've been seeing a lot of that. I, I don't totally know what I feel about this yeah. yet. I, I think there's more to come to light, but yeah, you're right. I mean, what this means, as I mentioned, like with the loss of Silvergate and now Signature, basically crypto companies are locked out of the traditional finance system. And actually I was reading, Matt, in Bloomberg, that the seizure of Signature Bank by New York regulators, it actually came as a total surprise to Signature Bank's management team. Um, And yeah, you've seen people in the industry kind of speculating as to whether it actually needed to be seized in the first place. And if it didn't need to be seized, like why was it seized? I saw uh, Barney Frank, he's an ex-congressman that was behind the Dodd-Frank Act, and he's actually now a Signature Bank board member. He he was pretty clear about this. He said that the shutdown sends, quote, a very strong anti-crypto message. Mm. Um, yeah, there were a few other people that, that spoke. Caitlin Long, uh, the CEO and founder of Custodia, which is a crypto bank as well, said, quote, certainly since the beginning of the year, the debanking of the crypto industry has been happening. I trust what Barney Frank said. He had no reason to lie. Uh, And then another one that I pulled is I saw that Sheila Warren, who is the CEO of the Crypto Crypto Council for Innovation, said that recent statements from regulators, quote, seem to amount to de facto bans on dealing with all crypto companies, regardless of their business practices. Now, this is interesting to me because you may recall, like back in December, there were a bunch of U.S. lawmakers that did write a letter to the Fed demanding information on banks' ties to crypto in the U.S. Yeah. And in it, uh, Democrat Senators Elizabeth Warren and Tina Smith warned of mainstream banks' ties to crypto. And they actually mentioned Signature Bank and Silvergate by name. They so, did. I, yeah, I can see where, you know, some of these uh, theories come from basically. Yeah, it's, and you know, so Signature Bank had a pretty sizable arm over in the UK as well, which Mm -hmm. actually the UK subsidiary uh, was purchased on Monday by HSBC um, over here. And there has just been like a lot of knee-jerk anti-crypto stuff happening in banking over here. Uh, So I, one of our big consumer-based banks, uh, NatWest, has actually put a limit on anyone's like individual banking account of £1,000 sterling per day and 5000 per month total that you can transfer to any crypto exchange. You, ca- mm. you cannot transfer anymore. Like, and there is this like big sentiment that I think is coming from the US and is shifting over here into the, the UK pretty significantly. Trying to get cash into a crypto exchange is getting so much more difficult yeah. over here. And, you know, I've had a lot of trouble in the past taking fiat from 
a crypto exchange to the point where I've actually had bank accounts closed simply by doing a legit just transfer of funds into my bank. And I transferred over some cash into a major exchange, let's say. I won't name it. There's nothing bad about the exchange. just don't want to like cause any unnecessary drama. Um, via bank transfer, like usual, usual, via my account. And my bank held the, the wire, wouldn't release it, called me and was like, hey, is this for an investment or is it for crypto? And I was like, I'm funding in my like crypto brokerage. Uh, and they were like, we're going to need more information on it. I was on the call for 15 minutes where they were like running through loads of like details, making me do disclaimers. And I was like, and like, it wasn't a small amount of cash, but it wasn't a major amount of cash. It, it wasn't six figures of cash. Let's put it that way. And honestly, you would have thought I was transferring in like 10 million. Uh, the, and, and they held it. For, they held the wire for three days before they would yeah. release it. It, yeah. it. it is just getting really difficult, really, yeah. really difficult. And it hurts consumers. And I, it, it really does. It confuses me. A lot of this stuff. Yeah, you know, the same thing actually happened to me. I, I was telling you before we started recording. Um, I uh, I also had uh, transfers blocked and basically missed out on the entire dip that happened uh, recently <laughs> over the past couple weeks um, because of that. And what's so bizarre about it is that the, I have a long-standing history. Uh, you know, of doing this, um, the, n- none of these sort of transfers to the exchange from, uh, you know, my, the financial institutions that I bank with were out of the ordinary. Um, <clears throat> and yet they got blocked, which is just, you know, the timing of that was fantastic. <laughs> oh, that's great. Excellent. Wait for the, yeah. wait for the all time highs. And then those uh, DCAs will be re-enabled. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> well, so, so kind of coming back to the SVB stuff, right? So one of the big fallouts from this is everyone's been looking at this. And I think the crux of all of this here is there's one piece where you've got this concentration of um, highly volatile businesses, or at least very concentrated businesses that make up the customer base of SBV. That clearly can be advantageous in times where that sector is up, but it can be very, very detrimental when that sector is down impacts deposits, impacts like a whole host of things, right? Especially like default on lending, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The the real thing in all of this though is much less about that and is much more about the Silicon Valley Bank's approach to risk management. First of all, they tied up an obscene amount of their capital, making it largely illiquid for all intents and purposes into long-dated U.S. Treasury bills. Bear in mind, like, for example, Circle, with their reserves that they hold for USDC, is just a great example, right? Because it's like billions of dollars of, of reserves that are held there. Um, you, you have some of that held in cash, but the majority of it is in government-backed securities, like Treasury bills. The longest-dated Treasury bill that they hold is a 30-day bill for this exact reason. Right. If there is a run and they need immediate liquidity, they can sell it with either zero to minimal volatility. Right. And I think that is the key piece. The, the bank is taking deposits and it is trying to create profits by 
instilling risk. If you are going to create some additional risk for upside in like treasuries, long dated treasuries, one, you know, needs to be, first of all, probably reasonable rewards that they have to pay out. In their case, it just wasn't. Interest rates were at their lowest times. It's like the crappiest time to buy treasuries, right? In in most countries at that point in 2021. But most importantly, number two, is that need there needs to be a hedged kind of bet on the other side that protects them from downside. And they did not hedge this position in, in to any kind of level. So it just exposed them huge, huge amounts. And the panic that kind of ensued, especially near the start of this week's kind of tapered off a little bit now, is everyone was looking at this and going, okay, well, what else do we not know about some of these smaller banks? And I mentioned earlier, right, that um, a the, the total assets that, that they held at Silicon Valley Bank was under, it was over 200 billion and under 250 billion. Why, why am I making that point? I'm making that point because once you hold over 250 billion in assets, you become what's known as a uh, a GSIP, right? A or, or at least a SIP, right? a systemically important bank. In many cases, this means that one, the bank reaches such a size of assets that if it goes down, there is systemic risk across other banks. And what that largely results in is that a central bank is kind of obliged to bail you out if you're a if you're a GSIP. At the same time, you also have much stricter regulation and guidelines and the, the things that you can and can't do with depositors' cash. So they wouldn't have been able to make the kind of bets that they made without adequate hedging. And like so all, all of this, they have be, they have remained in this uh level of capital very strategically. So people are looking at this and they're going, okay, well, what about some of these other regional banks? And I think First Republic Bank was one where people were like, oh maybe First Republic Bank is like poisonous. And we saw on Monday just the most monumental drawdown in regional bank stocks that Mm -hmm. we've probably seen a long, long time. First Republic Bank went down nearly 50% in a single day. Tuesday, also, what a trade that is if you bought the bottom. Because Tuesday, they nearly all rebounded. And I know we can probably rule out systemic risk that's in place. There's... A lot of good stuff that happened off the back of the financial crisis with interbank lending and systemic risk and things like that. But I think those concerns around whether there's systemic risk in the banking sector coming from the collapse of SBB, I think consensus, I think it's probably fair to say, Austin, that there isn't. Um, Yeah. Where SVB has kind of like been really poison chalices, they're this highly concentrated deposit pool. I don't think that's ever a good thing. And they combine that with huge risk in capital. So this this is not good. I think what we really need, in particular in crypto, but generally speaking, but in particular with crypto, we need more openness from mainstream banks, in particular SIBs, like systemically important banks, to support the banking of crypto companies and key infrastructure. Like crypto banks aren't a good thing they're, they're like a necessary evil because when a single bank and and uh, and i maybe evil is the wrong word because i think what they're doing is really important and is fantastic and is they're taking a huge bet but it's not great 
like the they're like a compromise a necessary compromise that's 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 a better way to put it for sure because when a single bank has the majority of its exposure to crypto or any sector right this isn't just a crypto problem but you know we don't we are largely unbanked in crypto right now it becomes so much more vulnerable to market conditions we need crypto companies and infrastructure to be powered through diversified banking pools so that when there are large drawdowns in crypto, which will always happen, as will happen in all sectors, it can be balanced and hedged across other industries so that 90% of all your depositors aren't kind of all getting hit at the same time. So I think, I think that's like my soapbox here. And I think like the call for like more crypto banks is not what we need. It's actually that we need better adoption and, and openness in regular, mainstream, diversified banks. Um, mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it seems like we're almost heading the opposite direction because everyone's kind of spooked by this. Yeah, yeah. Also, we need DeFi and peer-to-peer transfers and all of that stuff too, right? Here's a, <clears throat> here's an interesting thing to think about though, Matt. Um, you know, we, we talk about SVB and its concentrated depositor pool and the risk that they took with their capital. And I feel like over and over and over again, when these stories unfold, you know, hindsight is so 2020 and we can say like, oh, you know, look at like what was going on there. Like, obviously there were, yeah. there were issues with their approach to T-bills and everything like that. Um, but Fun fact, as of just a couple days before SVB collapsed, they actually had a Moody's credit rating of A. <laughs> unbelievable, isn't it? It's it's actually yeah. unbelievable. Like, what are bank regulators looking at? Like, yeah. you know, I, 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 I've seen so much stuff where it's like, well, you know, companies need to do better, better diligence of the banks that they're banking with. I'm sorry. What, am I going to go through the balance sheet of my bank? They're a yeah. bank. <laughs> I, like it, you know. If if there is an institution that I am supposed to trust, these giant things. I was listening to a fantastic podcast right around this, and they were talking about the architecture of banks, which um, generally wouldn't be that particularly interesting. <laughs> but you know, every bank that's created, they they're always in these really historic looking buildings. They have these giant pillars outside them and they just look like fortresses and in many cases they don't actually hold a vault or anything between them the whole focus is their entire business is built around confidence trust safe mm-hmm. like safe as money in the bank right you know this this is the way that they need to be interpreted because if as we've seen confidence falters it can create a knock-on effect that can result in things like the a bank run happening. Now, I will say that uh, the the other kind of piece in this that I really hate uh, that's kind of been a narrative happening in the past kind of at least the weekend and the, 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 the few days after this is people blaming like venture capitalists for causing a run on the bank. I'm like, I'm sorry. If if you have concerns about the, the banks that are funding startups in your fund, it's basically a fiduciary duty that you would say, yeah. hey, like, you need to get out of this. What, you're just going to, like, be last person standing while and go down with mm-hmm. the ship? You would expect that a bank has capital, has hedged their bets, has risk management in place that they can manage solid 
kind of uh, like runs on their bank. That's their that is their literal point of existence, I, yeah. and it, it just it drives me nuts. Actually, this whole thing. Like, I'm not going to be the, the spokesperson for VCs. Like, there's a lot bad about that industry. But in this case, I and in particular, I'm not a huge fan of Peter Thiel. But uh, people putting this on Peter Thiel absconds all of the enormous responsibility that the negligence of the SVB team and some of the other banks involved have have had in place. And I don't think it's fair. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Uh, And it actually kind of brings up this question that has been floating around in my head uh, as we've gone through this, which is like, shouldn't banks either pay higher yields to their depositors or just stop investing their deposits? Like if I give you $1 and you loan out $10, (laughs) With that $1 and I get nothing in return, like, am I not getting screwed on both ends here, right? Like if if I wanted yields, theoretically, I could invest with a hedge fund, but then I'm taking on risk. I'm assuming some risk, Mm -hmm. right? Fair. If I want security, I should be able to put my money in a bank and not get yields, but like know that my money is there and that it's safe and it's being looked after, right? But if I'm putting my money in a bank, And then they're investing my deposits almost, and I'm obviously exaggerating here, but it's like, you're almost behaving like a hedge fund. So there I'm taking on risk and I'm not getting any yield. Like, how are we actually all right with this? I think that that's something that, that needs to, you know, be like overhauled within the banking sector as a result of this as well. It's like, Hey guys, if you're going to take my deposits, which are supposed to be safe, and then you're going to invest them in like these long-term T-bills, which I understand like are also supposed to be safe, but still look at what has happened. Uh, And then, you know, uh, you're going to collapse. I'm not going to have access to my funds and the government is going to have to come in and quote backstop, AKA bailout, in my opinion. Um, you know, the, the, uh, on the backs of the, the U.S. financial system and taxpayers and all, all of this stuff, um, like, why am I not getting a piece of, uh, of the upside from that risk? So I, I think this is a key point. And, and, and I actually think this pulls on something that hasn't been discussed a whole lot in this whole debate, which is very interesting to me. So one of the things that actually with SVB really con- uh, contribute even more to them being squeezed on both sides of like having this uh, long-dated treasury is the fact that unlike with regular consumer banks, so a regular consumer bank, you go into your savings account and let's say you have some cash in there and you look at like the interest rate uh, that you're getting on your savings. And like in the UK, like interest rates that you're getting, like in many consumer banks are still under 1%, right? It makes no sense. But nobody complains because no one kind of gives a shit, right? With their their current account, their checking account. They don't care enough to kick up a fuss about it. I'll tell you who does care enough. Companies. And when you're a commercial bank, they really push harder and harder and a lot of what they're going to push for where they put their cash, especially if you've just had, for example, 10 million in funding, is interest rates and what they're going to earn returns on. And that's where Silicon Valley Bank, being a large commercial bank in a venture capital-fueled sector, got squeezed a lot more because actually they did have to pass on a lot more of that interest rate yield to their depositors, which means they were kind of creaming a lot less off the top. Consumer banks, 
it's been an absolute cash cow interest rates mm-hmm. going up through this past year in, in uh, uh, well at least this past kind of 6 months because they have not been passing this on con- uh, to to their customers i kind of think this is like borderline criminal people just don't yeah. care enough because they don't hold enough cash really for it to be meaningful and maybe actually people don't even think about it in that way as much i i don't i i don't even think about it and i'm talking about this right now like it, that's an interesting piece in all of this. And I think that's another thing that is going to get a light shone on it a little bit more as we remain in a high rate environment. Or at least yeah. that's what we think we're going to remain in. And this is another thing we haven't talked about is what's going to happen on March 22 when yeah. the Fed, if you'd have said to me this time last week, I think we were talking about it briefly and we were saying, well, it's at minimum going to be 25 basis points. But the futures market just a week ago was predicting mm-hmm. a higher likelihood of a 50 basis point rise. Now, futures market is saying anywhere between zero and 25 basis points is going to happen. Some big funds are um, making bets that there's actually going to be a rate reduction because of the stress on the, the banking system that's happening right now. What what a What a U-turn. This is and what a what a dilemma it actually is for the Fed right now as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that the a, a good analogy that I saw, um, if you look at the the sort of rates uh, chart over the course of the past couple of years, it really it does look like a roller coaster. Or another way to put it is that the Fed is the pilot of the plane, which is our financial system, and they you know they jerked the yoke up and sent the plane up into the freaking stratosphere and then immediately after when when you know um covid hit jerked it down and then uh once inflation hit jerked it back up again and and we've gone way further uh that than we went before and look i'm not saying that personally i think that rates needed to rise like we need to battle inflation but the reason why is because we've been in this zero interest rate environment for like over 10 years. And then we printed trillions of dollars, um, you know, during COVID and everything like that. Uh, So the Fed has also put us into that position in the first place. Uh, And it it just seems to me like it feels like a lot of very risky policy that has led to this. And the thought of yet another Fed pivot, I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah, I think everyone's everyone's sick bag in the uh, in the plane is is already full, right? So, you know, <laughs> any more sudden movements, and we're we're gonna have a real messy situation. So, I think like the th- this is kind of the crazy thing. I think you know we had the the uh, CPI come out on Tuesday. I think it was uh, Monday, Tuesday, and things weren't as low. I think as maybe the Fed hoped, but yeah. they certainly weren't as high as uh, mm-hmm. they, they could have been. It didn't come in quite as hot. So that maybe helped a little bit in there. I think we're going to be netting out a 25 basis points increase. I, I just can't see. But first of all, um, I'd gamble what little USDC we, that I have left uh, on there <laughs> definitely not being a rate reduction. I think that would be a wild yeah. thing to happen. Mm-hmm. I think the most bullish case in like the market's perspective would be a a pause on rate hikes but i just still think you know what if they start slowing down now especially as we're kind of seeing like a real lack of systemic risk um 
it, it they're going to see the knock-on effects into inflation and yeah yeah and i think this is one of the reasons why right you know we're talking about all this and i think rightly so i've seen a lot of people asking about this where it's like wait you're telling me all these banks are collapsing all this bad stuff's happening it's doomsday etc but everything's up my equities are up mm-hmm. my crypto is up why well i'll tell you why yeah. because there is a one a, a, a very, very high likelihood that rates are not going to increase as quickly, right? So, you know, that's that's one big piece that's, that's happening here. Bond yields uh, are coming down. And also, all of these bailouts, there's a ton more liquidity coming into, into the market. Yep. I mean, outside the US, we haven't even talked about this, right? But Credit Suisse, you know, that wonderful bank that's mm-hmm. run really, really well. I was tweeting about this uh, a, a couple of days ago, right? And uh, yeah, they just received, what, $54 billion nearly from uh, the Central Bank of Switzerland uh, that's just yep. been injected into them to probably prolong their inevitable collapse at some point. And uh, it just cannot, this is going to continue to be the case. You know, that that backstop, that bailout you're talking about, Austin, that is money coming back into the system that is is a huge amount of capital being flowing out. It absolutely is. And it just blows my mind that there is such an effort to uh, change the language around this so as to not call it a bailout okay there the, of course there there is nuance to this but to your point matt the reality is that hundreds of billions of dollars in capital are going to be uh flooding the system and also are going to be infused into svb under management of the fdic to prevent this uh this collapse to bail it out the fdic as we mentioned earlier insures up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars in deposits but with this quote, backstop, they're going to be covering all deposits. And that amounts to 175 some billion dollars. Okay. That's a ton of money. Uh, Still, Bill Ackman insisted in his gigantic tweet thread on starting it with- What, with with no no paragraphs in any of these long tweets? Bill Ackman is fucking killing me at the moment with these things. Like, can somebody show him the return key? It is driving me insane. Yeah, yeah. Um, But of course you saw that. He started it with, this was not a bailout. I mean, okay. I think your point about VCs earlier, like, you know, not not pinning the bank run on them is I'm with you on that. But the the level of effort that VCs have made to push for this bailout and then to claim that it's not a bailout when when at the same time, always pointing the finger anytime any other industry gets bailed out. Do I blame them? Not necessarily, but like, look, you're not operating on your capitalistic principles here. Okay. In a proper capitalistic system, we would allow banks, institutions, companies to fail because that's like, that's, you know, that's how it's supposed to work. Like the survival of the fittest. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. Of course, the contagion from this would be incredible and it would spread to other areas of the the economy, potentially the global economy. Um, so I'm not saying that I'm against this entirely. I'm just saying like, this is not a very principled take. It's not a very honest take. Uh, I was reading this quote from Neil Borowski, who oversaw the troubled asset relief program, which was basically heavily involved in saving the bank in, banking industry in 2008. And he said, quote, if your definition is government inter- intervention, 
to prevent private losses, then this is certainly a bailout. Okay, yeah. this this is this looks a lot like a bailout, and our resistance to calling it that I think is disingenuous at best, if not dishonest. Okay, now to be clear, two hundred billion dollars of SVB assets are being auctioned off to help cover this. There's going to be some mm-hmm. special assessments made on banks, uh, which is basically a tax that that larger uh, banks will pay, which of course will make their way back into the system. I, I those are distressed assets that we're talking about. I don't think they're going to sell at, at their their market value, they'll sell exactly. at market value, which is for a distressed asset. So of course, the FDIC is going to have to infuse capital into this. Um, I, I do want to be clear that stockholders and executives at SVB are not being bailed out, which maybe is like an, uh, you know, an important characteristic that is different from the GFC. But even so, uh, this quote from Richard Squire, who is a professor at Fordham University's School of Law and an expert on bank bailouts, I think summarizes this pretty well. He says, quote, what they mean when they say this isn't a bailout is it's not a bailout for management. The venture capital firms and the startups are being bailed out. There is no doubt about that. Yeah. Um, and then Squire went on to say, when top White House officials avoid the B word, they are trying to not be brushed with the tar of the 2008 financial crisis. And that's what I think is really the root of all of this is that Washington has learned that bailouts are politically unpopular. And yeah, that's what I... <laughs> that is, yeah, that I is mean, the, that's the issue. And this is all in the background of the run-up to what is happening very, very soon, which is the next election, right? You know, th- yeah. th- it, it, this is the kind of crazy point in all this. It's also worth calling out that we'll probably be talking about this next week, I imagine. The SEC is starting an investigation on the uh, some of the executive yeah. team at SVB for them dumping a shit ton of their own stock in the week running up to the bank's collapse. Yeah, mm-hmm. th- this is going to get ugly. I, I-, I can yeah. tell oh, you that. Oh, it certainly sure. is. It, uh, but this gonna... is the thing that... This is something, a theme that has really upset me over the past couple years is this redefinition of fundamental terms or a resistance to using the right term to describe the scenario because it's politically inconvenient. This is so similar to the resistance to using the term recession to describe the the, uh, economic situation that we've been in for the last six months, a year or so, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, We're redefining terms that are so fundamental to the way that we run our economy and our banking system and that we build the trust that is so critical to what makes banks and markets work. I I thought that this... um, you know, the, uh, this additional quote from Squire kind of, you know, summed it up. He said, if we use a different term, we're serving the interest of those who want to obscure what is really happening here. And what he's saying is like, it's a bailout. If we're using the word backstop, we're obscuring the reality. And I think that's something that plays into this even more. Like, look, we're in the early days of this, folks. Promises are being made. Oh, you know, the, the executives uh, and and the the VCs, they're, they're you know, they're not going to be bailed out. They're not going to go on their AIG <laughs> style trip to Vegas. That's not going to happen. That took months for those types of things to come to light. And you can already start to see concerning things popping up. For example, last night, JP Morgan said that the Fed's emergency loan program may inject as much as $2 trillion of funds into the U.S. banking system to ease the liquidity crunch. All right. This is like (laughs) not even within a week of this happening. Oh, 
Fire up the printers, baby. Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's going to get real interesting. Austin, I'm going to cut us off. We're gonna we're gonna wrap this up. We're gonna fired up. I'm I'm fired up from this conversation. Yes. Uh, we're to gonna keep continued. covering this. This is definitely to be continued. We're gonna chat through some of this more next week, and I'm sure we'll be covering uh, the the free money coming with Arbitrum on another on another note <laughs> of printing. Uh, but uh, I, I think this is it's a critical critical point in in crypto, and I think this is sh- gonna shape long lasting legislation. I think. Where we are today and what we're experiencing here, a lot of this happened. It began at the, the 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 kind of the crumbling of FTX, and we're still seeing this be one of those big knock-on effects. My hope here is that we we start to kind of move away, and there isn't a really bad anti-crypto reaction, which is starting to yeah. happen, um, and that we can actually get sensible banking infrastructure in place and some good banking partners for for the critical infrastructure that's powering crypto. We will see how it plays out. And I just hope that next week we're not talking about the next big bank collapse. All right, Austin, until then, I'll see you next week. See you next week, back. Contents of the Decrypting Crypto podcast should not be used and are not intended as investment advice. Please do your own due diligence before making any investment, cryptocurrency or otherwise.